Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. This week is calling in from Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken. Frank, how are things in Connecticut? David, you're right. I'm in my favorite part of the United States, not Connecticut, but New England. So I'm in a very good frame of mind. And as for how things are, for my weekly weather update, they're cold. It's 25 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus four Celsius. So even though spring has allegedly begun, it is cold in Connecticut today. That's what I will say. You see, that's the thing about Connecticut weather. It is can be very unpredictable in that respect. Here, it's yes. normal Scottish in, in, in March weather. So um, very nice. Right. Uh, so our topic this week is inspired in part by an article in Time magazine uh, by John Garrison Marks on the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence and American Independence more broadly, and about the sort of plans for the, I guess this is called the semi-quincentennial, uh, which will be a word that, that you'll probably get familiar with uh, over the next uh, four years, uh, and had the preparations for it and, and whether the uh, 250th anniversary, what that's going to look like, and some potential problems that may be in store for us as we come closer to this anniversary. So we want to talk about the, the controversies going toward uh, 250 uh, and maybe see if we can put in some context with some other anniversaries and see how, how this one compares. So Frank, what, what jumped out at you in this article about, about 250 and what, whether we should be worried about it or not? Well, whether we should be worried about it or not is immaterial because it's coming. Um, <laughs> one thing that strikes me is we have to decide what to call this thing because bicentennial made sense back in 1976. Everybody knew what it meant. Semiquincentennial is a mouthful. Yes. Um, there's another phrase for it, which I, I, I can't remember now. But I, I, in my world where this is a big deal, most people are just saying the 250th. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what, what we settle on there. Uh, I think, as is often the case, and we've talked about the history wars and the kind of culture war over the past a lot recently, and I think this is, I think what we're going to see is the, um, those battles and those arguments about how we uh, celebrate and or commemorate the American past are going to really come to a head in the next four years. We had a little bit about this with your field, didn't we, with the 150th for the Civil War, but I think the, the, the current political mood is such that we are really going to have a big fight. Um, and, and the recent debate that uh, really degenerated um, over the 1619 project is, is, is a kind of precursor of what's to come. So um, I, on one hand, I'm excited because this is the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's a, it's a big deal, right? And this is my stuff. On the other, I'm filled with dread because I just think we're going to we're really going to just scream at and past each other a lot in the, in the coming years. So, so there's a commission that's been appointed uh, by, by Congress to, to do this. But imagine, Frank, if you were the commission and got to choose what you wanted the 250th to look like, what would you want to see as being, you know, the, the, how this anniversary is, is remembered or, or celebrated or commemorated or whatever the right word is? I'm waving my phone, listeners, so David can see it. I'm waiting <laughs> for the call. So if I if I get the call to head this commission if they, in the next 40 minutes or so, I'll let you know. Uh, well, I think what, this is an opportunity to return and try to have a serious discussion 
about first principles. And I mean, first principles, literally. I mean, the, 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 the reason 1776 is important, the reason 1776 is contested uh, is because it's the founding moment for the United States. And the United States was founded on a creed as articulated in the Declaration of Independence. Now, whether the United States has lived up to that creed or not is something we've discussed many times and we'll continue to discuss. And that's a discussion that will carry on long after we're gone, David. Uh, and, and it should. Uh, but I think this is a moment, I think, to return to those first principles and have a serious discussion about them what they meant then, how limited they might have been then, also what promise they held then in 1776, but also how we've grappled with them since. And I think we'll do that. I'm actually pretty confident we will do that. But I think, so you, in answer to your question, that, that's what I would like to see us do. How you do that is a, is a good question. And the other thing is there's going to be a lot of noise. So we're going to, I mean, you, well, you weren't alive in the bicentennial. I no, know. no, I, I was not yet born. Oh dear. I was, and I was, you know, the reason I think I made the choices I did was I experienced the bicentennial as a young kid in Massachusetts. It was a big deal. Um, and, and, you know, I think that affected my life choices. Uh, there was a huge amount of patriotic schlock and kicks and all kinds of stuff around the bicentennial. I think we'll get that. That might even be a little fun. I don't know if it doesn't do anybody any harm. Um, so we're going to get a lot of that, but we're also going to have, we're going to continue the fight we're having about what the United States is and should be and what it means. Hmm. And again, I, and I'm happy to elaborate on this. We, we started this with the debate a year or two ago over the 1619 project, which is ongoing. And the fact that president, then president Trump, created as an answer to 1619, the 1776 project or commission rather, um, you know, was a, and so we ended up with 1776 has become a shorthand for opposition to 1619. And I'd really like to see that not continue. That's a terrible sentence, but I don't want to see that continue, but I'm pretty sure. Well, let me give you a brief example. And, and, and uh, I apologize for speaking so much. So as, as, some listeners may know, I co-edited a book series with the University of Virginia Press with Patrick Griffin uh, from Notre Dame, and it's called the Revolutionary Age Series. And it's a, it's a book series that aims to um, publish new and ongoing scholarship on the revolutionary era and the, the, uh, these, what historians have sometimes called the age of revolutions. It's not confined just to the American Revolution, but to um, the age of revolution in the Atlantic world more broadly. We originally called that series Global 1776. That was the original name that we came up with, I don't know, back in 2018 when we started drafting, you know, when we envisioned the thing and proposed it. Because what we wanted was we wanted to give real emphasis to, um, not exclusively, but we still wanted to make sure we amplified the voices of scholars working outside of the United States, both on the history of the American Revolution, but on the age of revolution more generally. And so we wanted to encourage people to take a truly global view to, the, to, to these events. We got so far as the University of Virginia Press, you know, putting out a press release at one point that was subsequently called back. 1776, by the time we launched the thing, had become so tainted as a shorthand not to, it became associated with a political statement 
And our intention was not to make a political statement. You know, but we, 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 we became very concerned that 1776, just using 1776 in the title of this book series, would be seen as us rejecting 1619 and the principles behind that, which we didn't intend to do, and making a political statement, which we didn't intend to do. And so we had to rename the project. And so I, the reason I'm saying this is only insofar as 1776, which should be un, it should be controversial, but not controversial for the, the reasons it's currently controversial. There yeah. are controversial aspects. There are things to debate about 1776, and we ought to have those debates. Um, but it's it's it has become a shorthand, if you will, for a sort of you know a Trumpist interpretation of American history. And that wasn't what we were uh, purporting to do. And so we had to change the name. And so we have to get beyond that for a start. But that just, I think, epitomizes some of the difficulties, I think, where the and challenges we'll face in the in the coming years. Now, now you mentioned, I think I think you're definitely right, that the, the ways in which particular symbols of the revolution are politically um, inflected right now, whether that's 1776 as a, as a date or, or the American flag, even as a symbol, what that you know, it means a different, has, especially if you do Betsy Ross flag or something, that, that, that has valences today. Or the, or the Gadsden know. flag, for exactly. example, that, yeah. you know, has been appropriated by the, by the right and was so prominent on January 6th. Now, now you mentioned the, the, the bicentennial, and I think that's an interesting sort of point of comparison. What, how is the bicentennial celebrated? What, both what, you know, what, what are your memories as a, as a child of, of the bicentennial and also, you know, like, what, how should, how have historians sort of made sense of the bicentennial? Well, one of my abiding memories of the bicentennial, and this is uh, very um, local, is my next door neighbor, Mr. Burns. <laughs> he was actually called that. It's not from uh, The Simpsons. <laughs> Mr. Burns. Um, was a reenactor and he was a Minuteman and he was very busy in, in 1975, 74, 75, and 76. He was a Minuteman carrying a musket. Um, and there was a lot of that going on, um, at least in the Eastern part of the country in, in, and, and beyond in 19, I'll say 1976, but it was really in the years up to 1976 and beyond. Um, there were bicentennial minutes on television. They were these little kind of history lessons, some of which weren't bad, frankly. And I, I can't remember which corporation sponsored them, but there were bicentennial minutes between TV programs um, on, on television. Uh, Richard Nixon, uh, during the during Nixon's the tail end of Nixon's presidency, that wasn't consumed by Watergate. One of the things he proposed was a bicentennial commission. Uh, and there was a bicentennial commission, but there was tension there over that because of Nixon's intention. And again, I don't, I, I don't think this is a partisan statement. I think that was the mood of the country uh, for many people in 1976 was that this should be a moment of patriotism and celebration of um, the achievements of the United States, particularly because you got to remember where we were in 1974, 1975, 1976. You know, it was we had Watergate. Speaking of Nixon, the defeat in Vietnam. Um, you know, the energy crisis, there was a sense, you know, we, we think we're in a crisis now, and in many respects we are, there was a similar feeling of crisis in the run-up to the bicentennial, and I think many um, Americans saw this as an opportunity to sort of uh, almost reset and, and reboot, we didn't use the phrase reboot in 1976 because we didn't have computers yet, uh, in any meaningful way, or not, certainly not home computers, um, 
and I think that that was the that was one version of 1976. But of course, there was a huge amount of strife in the country. Again, in the area of the country I grew up in, you know, it was the immediate aftermath of the busing crisis in Boston over the desegregation of schools, uh, and and the civil rights movement had entered a new phase by the mid 1970s, and and um, and there was a desire that echoes the current debates to have a much more inclusive version of the American Revolution or to present a more inclusive version of the American Revolution in 1976. Now, the demography of the country was very different. It was still an overwhelmingly white majority country. And so although there there were some kind of notable efforts to to, uh, have a more inclusive celebration in 1976, it was still pretty much dominated by a narrative about heroic white men doing heroic white man things mm. um, to, to, to rebel against the British. We're not going to have that this time. Well, we're going to yeah, have I, that, but that's going to be a, a smaller part of it. I well, think. I mean, yeah, the things that you know that, that come to mind for me with the the centennial or the bicentennial, I should say, sorry, um, you know, were the tall ships they had going into New yep. York. So there's 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 sort of the pageantry of that the. This, the the Fourth of July parades were sort of over the top and patriotic, and I think your your ideas there about sort of the tension between what Nixon and some other people wanted in terms of creating a a, a uncomplicated narrative for the bicentennial. Uh, that tension with Vietnam, Watergate you know, more sort of darker moments and how you sort of juxtapose the, the sort of disnified version of the bicentennial that you saw in lots of, of media presentations about the bicentennial, the sort of um, unnuanced version of, of, of American patriotism and, and exceptionalism. It sounds to the, the discussion, the, the, what you're talking about though, and what's in the article, actually it reminds me a lot of what happened with the civil war centennial and sesquicentennial in as much as the civil war centennial they had a national commission and the national commission said we're going to talk about this as a war of national unity which doesn't make any sense because it's civil war people killing each other but that's uh you know that's not the narrative they privileged they wanted to sort of celebrate heroes on both sides in the civil war centennial they very consciously tried not to talk about race or talk about one side being right or wrong in the conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a time in which there was sort of a, a commercialized version of what the Civil War Centennial was. Uh, you know, that's when re- you mentioned your, your neighbor, the reenactor, obviously reenacting in the Civil War is a big deal. And there were lots of, you know, that's sort of the high point of Civil War reenacting. And then just, you know, more recently when we got to the sesquicentennial, the 150th, there was this desire to create, and I think this is reflected in the, the Time, the, the, the Time Magazine article, a desire to create a sort of a more nuanced and complicated version of what the Civil War was, one that's more reflective of the complexity of, of the participants, more attuned to questions about race and gender and class than um, it was 50 years ago. Um, which led to a very different kind of commemoration than what we had um, in the 1960s. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting and, and true. I mean, I remember, you know, my parents had a 
run of National Geographic going back decades. When Everyone's parents did. But those ones from the early 1960s, you know, there were a whole series of issues with fabulous maps, mm. uh, you know, commemorating the centennial of the Civil War. Um, and, First and one of those, by the way, if you get a hold of it, I've got a copy in my office. It's got two articles in it. The, the, the first one from is is about origins of the, but the Sesquicent or the centennial. Second one is about Scotland. All right. Okay. And so it's actually got some great pictures of Edinburgh and stuff right next to Civil War stuff. I find that amusing. And students enjoy seeing it. But anyway, sorry. Anyway. Um, so so that was certainly the mood of the of the centennial. And you're right. The uh, uh, the sesquicentennial was was very different. I mean the the New York Times series was it what was it called? Disunion. Um, yeah, was was great uh, and really, really interesting. So part of it is, I guess, one of the lessons is the further you get from these things, maybe you do get a little perspective. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the 50th anniversaries of these things. So in 1826, uh, there were still lots of veterans of the, of the American Revolution around. Of course, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on the 4th of July, 1826. Uh, but but there was a sense of both a passing generation, but also that this is still within memory in the same way that you have those mem those those quite moving early movies of Civil War veterans getting together on the at Gettysburg on the 50th anniversary in 1913 and things like that. Then once you get to a centennial, you finally get some space. So I'd be interested to know what, what you think was going on in 1876 and, uh, with regard to the revolution. And then once you, you know, 150, 200 years, it's a long time. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, with, with the centenary of the revolution, the, the sort of big event connected with the centenary was um, the uh, World's Fair in Philadelphia uh, that was, you know, designed to, to celebrate the centennial. They had um, the torch from the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty hadn't been uh, completed yet and they were raising money to build the, the pedestal and so you could climb up into the, the the torch which was like 20 feet high so it wasn't great view but you know you got to pay gave your quarter so you could uh, um, help pay for the pedestal there was an effort to sort of see that centennial I think is obviously as a point of national reunion and using the the, the anniversary as a this is obviously only 11 years after the end of the civil war and there's country is still sort of reeling with that fracture and that sort of level of, of destruction and death. And I think people were looking to the Centennial Fair in Philadelphia as a sort of point of, if not healing and closure, at least steps in that, that direction. Um, but I think there is an effort in, you know, in the Centennial to, to, you know, there's a deification, of course, that, that has happened at that point since the revolution is now so far in the past that there aren't people who remember it. So there's a, a both a deification and a, a sanitation of the revolution that starts to happen then if it hasn't already, hadn't already fully come to fruition. What, what are yeah, your... one, of the, one of the weird aspects of the, the way the revolution, the memory of the revolution changes in the 19th century is it becomes much less violent in popular okay. memory. And so in part because it, Thanks to your war, there's a big <laughs> conflict in the middle of the century that makes everything that came before look small anyway. But there's also um, 
a kind of comforting narrative that emerges, at least among the, the, the dominant majority in the United States at that time, that the revolution was more of an evolution. Mm. So part of this is, you know, we're not radical like the French or radical like, you know, once Marxism starts to take off and there are Marxist movements in Europe in the late 19th century, our revolution wasn't like that. So, so there's a kind of homogenized, peaceful version of the revolution takes root. The other thing that happens around the centennial in 1876, of course, is um, the Battle of Little Bighorn is, is just 10 days before, 10 or 12 days before the, um, the, the the celebration on the 4th of July. And so that puts a little damper on things because this narrative of, of unalloyed triumph for the United States, first of all, it's a reminder that there's conflict with indigenous people going on, but also that the United States, you know, the, it, it's sort of, um, inevitable rise doesn't you know doesn't seem so certain in 1876. You just had a major war um, between Amer- between and among um, Americans of European descent over slavery um, and including indigenous and enslaved people, uh, and then you get this ongoing conflict in the um, in the Trans Mississippi West that's going on, and there's a stark reminder in 18th June of 1876 uh, that that conflict isn't over. So. 1876 is a weird moment in in a lot of ways, Mm. Um, just as 1976 was and as 2026 will be. We've always, to some extent, maybe the lesson from all of this is, yeah, we're going to have our kitsch and our schlock and academics are going to do their thing. But whatever we're anxious about probably becomes manifest at these moments as well. Maybe maybe that's the real lesson from this. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking here about the planning that went into the Civil War Sesquicentennial, which, you know, is obviously sort of a decade ago now. And, you know, the, many of the sort of conversations people were having about planning the Sesquicentennial are very similar to the conversations people are, were having, are having about, you know, the 250th, about how do we create complicated narratives, ones that incorporate the complexity and all these kinds of things and how kinds of events are appropriate for that. And, You know, I think some people looked at the sesquicentennial as a, as a as a failure and as a disappointment because it didn't generate the kind of mass conversation about the Civil War, or interest in Civil War things the way that we hoped it would. Everyone assumed that we were going to, uh, you know, there was going to be a, a flourishing the way that maybe there was in the, the centennial. On the other hand, looking back on the sesquicentennial now, that's been over for a bit, you know, I think there were, there was a public education element that happened during the sesquicentennial that has had meaningful ramifications for and, and, and shaped the way that people read events like the massacre in, 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 well, in Charlotte, well, the events in Charlottesville and in Charleston before that. I think that the events of the sesquicentennial is ways in which people centered slavery and white supremacy as being at the core of what the Civil War was about and, and what the motivations of, of white Southerners to secede. Um, you know, I think the ways in which the country then responded to those other events were shaped in part by the Susquehanna, even if the events themselves weren't all that well attended. Um, what you know, about you know, the, like people who went to you know, reenactments and stuff, there wasn't even remotely as popular as it was, say, during the uh, centennial. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have two responses to that, David, because on one hand, and I think I, we've discussed this previously on the podcast, 
there was a period, especially after the rise of President Trump, uh, when it seemed like the only history we talked about in the United States at a public level, and talked about might be the wrong way to frame it. We shouted mm-hmm. about, we invoked, uh, we talked past each other, was about the Civil War. I, I remember joking with you and saying, well, I'm glad it's you and not me. Well, boy, I really mean <laughs> exactly. that now, because now, now that it's me and not now you, it's good, yes. like, boy, this is fun. Um, but, 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 but so there was a huge amount of uh, energy being expended around I won't even say debating the Civil War because it wasn't that sophisticated, mm. was it? It, yeah. was, it appeared to be a bit of debate about the Civil War, but we weren't really debating it. But that, so that then, of course, is after the sesquicentennial was over. Right, of course. Yeah, right, right. You're right. You're right. Um, but also, you know, the bicentennial was a spur to a lot of very good scholarship. So on one mm. hand, yes, you had McDonald's placemats, you know, having the Battle of Fort Moultrie on them and things like <laughs> that. I learned a lot from that. Um, but there was also, there was a period, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's coincidental that there was a real kind of efflorescence of scholarship between the early to mid 1970s and the early 90s, which take to, encompasses the bicentennials of the, revolution starting and the uh, ratification of the constitution. And so I actually think that had a positive effect on scholarship. I guess my question to you is, do we see that around the major civil war um, anniversaries? And the one thing I'm hopeful about as far as 2026 is we're going to have fights. We're going to do all the things that happened over the sesquicentennial of the civil war. Hmm. But I also think we're going to get some good scholarship out of it. And oh, when I, we take a step, when you take a step back or look at it from 2036, we'll say, actually, yeah, there was a lot of nonsense and there was, you know, silliness and God knows what social media will look like in 2026. But um, I think there'll still be some good, good coming out of it in terms of scholarship. So my question is, do you get that with the Civil War? And do you agree with that interpretation? Oh, I think there'll be some good scholarship that'll come out. Of it. I mean, there was good scholarship that came out of the Civil War. Sesquicentennial, um, but you know, there's a the volume of Civil War scholarship is always at a pretty high level anyway, in terms of the least amount of volume of it. Um, so I th- I'm sure that the um, you know coming 250th is going to produce a lot of great scholarship. I hear there's a great book coming out on on Jefferson Washington that everyone's <laughs> going to want to read. You know. There's going to be a lot of stuff, and there's going to be a lot of stuff that looks at the revolution. I think in different ways then, you know, I think there's going to be the, the, the high level political stuff. There's going to be some takes on the revolution that are very different than what people are used to. I think there's going to be some fights about, you know, what the revolution was and what the revolution means. These are obviously fights that within academia have been pretty, pretty vibrant for, for a generation, but I think the public will be exposed to those fights maybe in a way that they haven't been. Um, you know, there's going to be some TV specials. There's going to be some other kind of, who knows. You know, one of the things that, that happened with the sesquicentennial of the Civil War that worries me about, or that, that sort of reverberated when I read this timepiece, was that there was very little actually coordination for the Civil War, sesquicentennial. You know, in the, in the centennial back in the six, 1960s, 
Um, you know, there was a national commission and it was very sort of networked and organized and the, there were state commissions, the national commissions, they all worked together. Still kind of a mess, but, you know, at least there was a, a, a central focusing kind of, of scheme and there was money devoted to it by the federal government. Um, the sesquicentennial, none of that happened. There were state commissions in some states, but not in every state. There was in the middle of a, you know, the 2008 financial crisis when most of the planning was happening. So states didn't allocate any money for it. So, you know, a couple of states did a good job, but most did nothing. Um, and just the way that the, the commission or the various commissions were described, at least in this, this time article, reminded me of that. Seems I wonder if there's gonna be a number of different versions of, uh, and versions of what the 250th is gonna look like and it's gonna depend in part on where you are, that there's gonna be some states that are gonna push for, and I think you see this in, a, in, in the article, some states that are gonna push for this multivalence complex revolution that has lots of different actors and different stories. Um, that in much many ways is keeping with the uh, you know, direction the scholarship is heading. And there's some, some places that are going to have a less nuanced, more patriotic, more um, reminiscent in some ways of the bicentennial version of, of the 250th. And there's going to be some, I think, discordant notes there as a consequence of that about, you know, what the revolution what that story is going to look like uh, in, in the four years' time. I, I think you're right. And I think one of the problems at a national level is because President Trump created the 1776 Commission as he was going out of office, and it should be noted there were no historians of the American Revolution serving on that commission. They, they couldn't get anybody to agree to, to do so. Uh, and because President Biden disbanded that almost immediately upon taking office. I think any national effort is going to become a partisan, an object of partisan debate, which will make its recommendations problematic no matter how good they are. Uh, so I, I'm not all that optimistic about what will happen at the national level. At the state level, I think you're right. I think it's going to be uh, a mixed bag. Don't forget, and I know. Uh, I know you won't, <laughs> uh, this is going to get caught up in the, the current debates about critical race theory and the laws and various states about what can and can't be taught, where I have some hope. And so, so I'm not, sorry, uh, in response to, to, to your statement, I'm not all that hopeful about publicly sponsored um, commemorations or events. I think that they'll end up being becoming very partisan very quickly and probably not um, uh, produce much apart from parades and things like that. Uh, where I have some hope is uh, museums and scholarly enterprises and, and foundations and so on are preparing and doing good work. So, you know, our friend Emma Hart, formerly of St. Andrews, who now directs the uh, McNeil Center at, at the University of Pennsylvania, the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at Pennsylvania, you know, they're planning um, big conferences and so on and have already started holding them. They held one uh, last weekend uh, in Philadelphia and online uh, to mark this anniversary. The Massachusetts Historical Society has got a very vibrant program of activities um, in the works. I've 
a member of the uh, scholarly activities committee uh, at, at Monticello, and I know that down at Monticello, you know, this is yeah, their I'm sure big they're going to leverage this, this a bit. Yeah, yeah, for Jefferson, this is a bit. For people who work on Jefferson, this is a big deal. Um, so, so there is a lot of planning going on um, at that level. I'm talking about universities and scholarly organizations and foundations and museums and so on. So I, I think there will be activities, uh, but I, I, I think that the interesting work is more likely to go on in, in those spaces mm -hmm. probably than in, in um, within governments or sponsored by governments, either at the state or, or national level. Be interesting to see what local localities do, because this is really important in particular localities. So I think about when I was growing up in suburban Boston, every town in kind of the early 1970s was marking something that happened there um, during the revolution or, or in the run up to it. Uh, then and you know in different parts of the country there are different um there there will be different bicentennials to celebrate in the mm -hmm. in the next really 10 years if you think about it um or even longer if we take it down to to, to 1789 is the end of, of thing of, of the revolution so I, I think you will see local activities um some of which might be high quality some of which may not now, what, what do you think is going to surprise people in terms of, of, of visions of the revolution that people aren't used to? What's going to be the new angle on the re revolution that's going to come about in the, the 250th? Well, I don't think it's so new anymore, but I think, you know, I think once you make... Uh, <laughs> Once you make the discussion a discussion about both the ideals as outlined in the Declaration of Independence and the fact that one fifth of Americans were enslaved in 1776 and how Americans then dealt with that issue um, and how we've debated how we discussed that issue and that history, I think that's gonna be much, much more prominent uh, than it was in, in 1976. I think the thing we've barely scratched the surface of yet is really coming to grips with the indigenous history of the United States and its antecedents. So we don't yet have a 1492 project to sit alongside the 1619 project, but I think that part of the, the, those those stories are gonna be come to the fore and they're going to upset some people, and we're going to and, and we're going to be told it's political correctness and it's anti-patriotic and or anti-American and all this kind of stuff. But I think that will I don't think that will surprise people because I think that's that's those are debates we're already having. I think the really interesting part of this, and this might be a function of us living and teaching and working where we do, is the British side is much more complicated than the traditional narrative that most Americans get would would, would have them to believe. Um, so I think. I think that manifests itself in a couple of ways. So, you know, 18th century Britain was a much more complicated place than the convenient narrative about the revolution would have us believe. It's, you know, George III is not a tyrant um, in, in any kind of meaningful way. Uh, and so I think that story will be, will be interesting. And I think when you think about it on this side of the water, and I'm referring to, to the United States right now, because that's where I am, I think the story of the loyalists, which didn't figure that prominently in the bicentennial will probably get bigger play this time. And I think that will surprise and interest people. Mm -hmm. Having said that back in 76 and in, the, in its immediate aftermath, there was a real boon in loyalist studies around the bicentennial, Mary Beth especially, Norton, in, kind of yeah, yeah. 
but especially in Canada as well. And 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 because that's an important element of Canadian history at that time. Um, and, and so I, 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 that stuff was there in 76, mm. but it, it didn't get much popular attention. Because again, in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate and everything else, we weren't stressing the things that divided us and saying, you know, because you know, if we're honest about this, the, American, the War of Independence is the first American Civil War. Right. I mean, yeah. it, 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 in some ways, it, it, it anticipates what we're going to see in the mid 19th century. But that's not usually the narrative. So I think that will be this. I think we'll probably give that more emphasis this time around. What do you think? Uh, I, th- I think you're right. And, and you know, the sort of the, the not only the British component of it, but sort of the global aspects yeah. of, of the revolution, I think, are going to. Surprise some people, and I think this, you know, what I know about this is mostly stuff I've I've learned from you, but but it's thinking about what does the revolution look like from London, what does it look like from Edinburgh, what does it look like from Spain or you know, just around the globe, you know, what does it look like from Hong Kong? And you know, there, there, there are different stories to be told about the um, global reach of the revolution and the ways in which the world shaped the revolution and the revolution shaped the world. Um, yeah, and I think we'll get a more grandiose about it, but yeah, I think you're right. Well, we'll also get a more continental view in the sense that it mm. won't be just about the 13 colonies. I mean, the work of Kathleen Duval and mm. Alan Taylor and numerous others have, you know, really led us to, to uh, Claudio Sant to think about um, how North, how the revolution shaped North America, but mm. North America shaped the revolution. It's not just a political dispute along the Eastern Seaboard anymore. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously that's this conversation that, that historians have had for, for a generation now. What does the revolution look like from the middle of the continent or what does it look like from the, from, you know, the Pacific Ocean? Um, but getting that to sort of filter into the public discourse and have, you know, um, going beyond academia, I think that's going to be fascinating to see what that, that looks like. Um, he said that the, you know the my optimistic version of what this is looking like is going those conversations will happen. My sort of pessimistic view is there's going to be a huge fight in Congress over who really loves America and who really hates America and uh, how the you know two fifties is going to be an inflection point for for all of those things. Um, but we will see in the uh, the years to come, I guess. Yeah, I think it will be David, but I also think if we are able to take a step back and, you know, and, and take a deep breath, there will be a lot of good stuff that comes out of it. If we're just patient and try to sift through it, but there's going to be a lot of noise. <laughs> okay. Well, a lot of noise. Everyone wear your plugs and, 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 and uh, look closely for, for the good stuff. Cause it'll be there. Okay. Uh, well, we will, we will, we will obviously return to this topic as we get closer and closer to this anniversary, because there's going to be, be lots of, 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 particular anniversaries coming up in the years to come and that we're gonna have to sort of think about uh, what those mean uh, in, the, in, in the contemporary context. Exciting stuff. Yes, yeah, next year, for example, this is when it's really gonna heat up. So in 2023, we'll have the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. And I think that <laughs> will really, that'll, I think it, it could have started with the Boston Massacre in 2020, the anniversary, but we were all locked down in March. We all had other things to do in March of 2020. But I think I think the Tea Party anniversary 
next year will be the start of this really intensifying and it'll continue for probably five years after that, at least. You know, I, I want to say I'm looking forward to that, Frank, but I'm also slightly dreading it too. So uh, oh, we, we will. You and me both. Okay. <laughs> well, um, we, we will see how that unfolds. Um, pay, pay attention to, to what, well, you know, one of the things that, that happened in, you know, these things are, I've always gotten politicized though. Cause I mean, I remember I was looking back at the, the bicentennial, you know, people were angry at the oil companies in, in, Seven, in 1973, and so they were dumping fake barrels of oil into the Boston Harbor, you know, then to sort of protest uh, the, the high price of oil. Um, and, and I'm sure there are people going to politicize, you know, these, these anniversaries are, are in part about the history, but they're obviously really about the present. And they say more about the present than they do about the past. Right. Time for last drops, Frank. What you got? You got something exciting and happy and uplifting for us? I don't know. I don't know that it's happy, but it kind of relates to what we're talking about, which is there was a story in the Washington Post over the weekend about Mont, uh, Montpellier. And Montpellier is is a um, is the home of James Madison. It's about it's in Orange, Virginia. It's about thirty miles from uh, Monticello. In fact, it's like the uh, third plantation people visit after they go to Mount Vernon and they go to. Yeah, Monticello. Then, then you go. Okay, good. Right. That's right. That's right. And and so and both Monticello and Mount Vernon are much better known in part because their their owners are better known. I I, I think to the the public at large. Uh, but Montpelier was uh, was owned by um, by James Madison, and uh, they've done a lot of really good work in recent years. In sorry, I called it Montpellier because that's the name of the place in uh, in Edinburgh. There's a cafe called Montpellier um, in Brunsfield, but Montpelier is it's called. Uh, uh, the home of James Madison is uh, has done a lot of good work in terms of looking at the history of the people that James Madison enslaved in recent years, uh, and they've done really interesting work when it comes to um, issues of equity within museum management. So they had a committee, or they have a committee there uh, that the Madison Foundation uh, that, that, that runs Montpelier, uh, they have a committee that consists of descendants of the, of the enslaved population from Madison's um, plantation. And that committee has real power. But there's a dispute now at, at the moment, and this hasn't yet been played out completely has not yet played out completely that the Washington Post reported on over the weekend between the James Madison Foundation that runs Montpelier and the members of the descending community over the membership of this committee and who can who can appoint people to the committee and basically uh, based on this this newspaper article it seems that there's a bit of a power struggle between the Board of Trustees for the James Madison Foundation and this committee, and the more broadly the, the community of descendants. It's not clear how this is going to play out, and um, the Montpeliers had a lot of bad press in the past three or four days over this as a result of this article. That's regrettable, both on its face because of what what the uh, board seems to be trying to do to this committee, but also because they've done so much good work, frankly. Mm more than places like Monticello and Mount Vernon had done, uh, at least in the immediate past, and really kind of been uh, leading the way as far as what a, what a house museum 
that's also uh, located in a plantation can do with its past and how it does it. But there, there's a tension there, and I'm aware of these issues from my involvement at Monticello between, okay, this place was owned by a very significant historic figure who's associated with important events like drafting the Constitution of the United States, but it was also a site where people were enslaved. And how do you make sense of that? How do you teach that? These are the issues we're going to be talking about in 2026. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of uncertainty and things are unsettled at Montpelier at the moment. And that's unfortunate. Um, it's not yet. I, I don't think it's been resolved, but I hope it will be resolved in a way. It's a fascinating that's, um, article. And yeah, it's a fascinating reflects, article. It's, it's a, you know, it reflects the, you know, different slave labor camps, historic sites have, have, have had different, you know, approaches about how, how to tell the story of enslavement on their, on their plan, on, on, on the location. And, and Montpelier was actually, I think, a sort of ahead of the curve, at least among the sort of founding fathers groups of, of, of plantations for, for doing that. Um, and in listening to the voices of, of, of the descendants of the former, of the enslaved. Um, but I think it does sort of speak to who, who owns the past and which voices matter and what kinds of stories we, we tell about the, these places. You know, do we talk about Montpelier as James Madison's home? Or do we talk about it as, as the place where 200 people were enslaved and you know, uh, forced to work uh, against their will? Well, you the answer is you have to do both. And they were doing to do both, right? But, but like, but, but, you know, you know, James Madison may be more of a selling point, but uh, in terms of their advertising, but you know, I think it is a question about how you sort of prioritize whose experience on the plantation do you, do you prioritize and whose voices today do you, do you prioritize? prioritize? So a fascinating article to, to talk about these yeah. issues and, and uh, relevant, obviously, to the uh, story about the, the 250th. Yeah. So what's your last drop, David? So, so you asked if I had anything happy and the answer was no. no. So no. do you have something <laughs> yeah, okay. happy? <laughs> All right. Well, I got, I got two things that are, that are, I'm not sure they're happy, but they're at least interesting. And this is in my uh, census uh, series of last drops. I guess I've had a couple of these now for a few weeks, but I like the census. Uh, so two of them. One is that the 1950 census is going to be available on Friday. So they, you know, they, they put these under the the returns themselves under lock and key for, for 72 years or something. Uh, but the 1950 census is going to be available so people can go in and look and see what their you know, parents and grandparents were doing uh, in, in 1950. It's obviously of great importance and interest to genealogists, uh, but to historians as well. So it's a very exciting thing uh, for, for those people who, who uh, are census aficionados. The other story, uh, census-related, uh, was I found on a blog. It's a blog about a particular neighborhood in, in Pittsburgh, and it's about a it's a genealogical thing. But they found an example in 1920, and they based this on reading the census very closely. The census taker apparently fabricated a large portion of his return. He made up names, he made up addresses. It looks like there was a snowstorm in Pittsburgh during part of the time he was supposed to be doing the counting. There's also a point which he seems to have accidentally counted people in the, like the wrong, he went left instead of right on a particular street. And so he had to redo a whole section and he ended up fabricating a bunch of names. And so it's this very sort of fascinating story of um, 
a historian genealogist who in looking at the census returns was able to determine that this particular census taker uh, had, had, had uh, fabricated a large section of their return. So. So hold on, David. I, and I know that this podcast is degenerating into census talk with David. Uh, but but so, so on one hand, we have good news that the 1950 census data is about to be released. On the other, you're giving us a warning that maybe we can't believe everything we see there. Is well, that- yeah, the, I think census data is fascinating because it does allow you to sort of go and you sort of say, well, it's like all historical evidence. You have to sort of ask, you know, what were the circumstances under which these documents were produced? How accurate are they? We know, you know, with all census data that, 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 that there are lots of people who get missed. We know from the most recent census that they, you know, they even kind of know roughly how many people they missed and certain categories of people get missed and people get mischaracterized in the census in all kinds of ways. And, and you know, sometimes that's a product of people filling out the forms wrong. Sometimes that's the product of the census taker, you know, their assumptions about people they're counting and all the kinds of things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's, but it's a fascinating story. It's how somebody who's actually could read that source and see in the census, which is not, you know, obviously a narrative, but but then sort of reconstruct what happened to the census taker and how they, uh, you know, at what point they decided to, to make up some names and put them in the slots rather than actually trudge from house to house in the snow. Uh, Interesting. So, so one further question, David. So the 1950 census is being released. Is this is it deliberate that it's 72 years? We're 72 years from yeah. 1950? Is that? Yeah, I think, you know, they, 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 the idea behind the, the, the window of, of 72 years is, is that's you know, roughly a lifespan, I guess. And so that, you know, people's, you know, they try to draw this balance between giving people this evidence that they want for history or genealogy or whatever, but also protecting the privacy of the people who's, who's, um, data is you know and, and lives are recorded in the census interestingly the scottish census which i mentioned last uh, episode which uh you know they have a window of 100 years so it's a slightly longer uh, right. window. um so you know the likelihood of you seeing yourself in the census is, is that much uh, rarer in, in scotland than it is in the us interesting interesting great well until next week frank cheers Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.